Oh, happy New Year. Can't believe I have to remember to write 2022 on everything now. Not that I actually write anything anymore. Who writes? Right? Checks, I guess. But I've got to got to relearn that. We're going to uh, re-engage our series in Job called Sovereign Suffering this morning. We stepped away about three weeks ago uh, just to focus on Christmas and uh, very thankful for the men that stepped up and preached and gave me a little break to go ahead and contract a deadly sickness. Thank you, guys. <laughs> you get the time off and then you get sick. It's like, thank you, right? Rachel's like, God is sovereign. I'm like, I do not want to hear that right now. <laughs> Amen? Yeah, I did. I did. And the best time to get sick is when you got time off, I guess. Uh, back on December 12th, we looked at the second part of Job's response to Eliphaz's final speech where Job really just annihilated Eliphaz's and his friends' bad theology. He gave 10 examples, seven plus the three on the back end there, of, of just how the wicked are able to continue to commit atrocities and, and even prosper to some degree. Remember, the friends believe that any wicked person, it, their days are numbered and God is going to come at them, you know, violently with wrath and judgment, and it's only a matter of time. And there is some truth to that, but Job's like, take a look around, and you'll see the wicked prospering. So uh, what, I, what I see happening in our, in our community and us doesn't really square with what you guys are saying. The wicked in us. Us was almost like a Sodom and Gomorrah or something like that, or maybe Vegas. Um, yeah, I was like, I had this wild idea to stay a night in Vegas, and uh, it was a dumb idea. I'll tell you that right now. So we didn't even stay there. Rachel's like, it's just evil. I can't stay here tonight. And I was like, there goes $240 for the hotel. Uh, but we drove right through there and didn't stop. And not to mention they had half the city tore up with the roads and everything. But us was just a, like a den of iniquity. The uh, wicked there were stealing and robbing and terrorizing and neglecting the poor and others. They were even murdering. Um, they were cheating on their spouses in the cover of darkness. It was absolutely like Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, if the Job's friends were right about the wicked and about Job, uh, who appeared to be suffering God's wrath for allegedly hiding wickedness, then why were the wicked in us getting away with all these atrocities? Why were they prospering? If Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were, would just kind of open their eyes and take a look around, they'd have to conclude that Job was right, um, and it is totally possible for the wicked to prosper while the righteous suffer. But, you know, sometimes people get so locked in their beliefs that you just can't reach them, and they won't even acknowledge what's going on around them, and that was the case here. In the next section, the middle friend, Bildad, I, the funny thing is, when I was preparing this message, I kept calling him Biden. And, and no, I, I didn't do it because I don't like Biden. This is what happens when you're on cold medicine for three weeks. And I was like, and then Biden said this, and then Biden said that. And I'm like, wait a minute, Biden doesn't speak that much. Uh, but the funny thing is, like, I don't, uh, does anyone get foggy headed when you take cold medicines for weeks and weeks and weeks? I was saying all kinds of weird stuff, but I kept calling the 
guy Biden, and I was like, that's not very nice, Biden. I mean, Bildad. Uh, but the middle friend, Bildad, he's the, the middle guy. He gives his final speech in this next section. It's really short, the shortest text in Job. Uh, it's like six verses, and it's poignant and concise and vicious. It is vicious. It's an attack. And uh, ends up calling Job a maggot and a worm toward the end, which I was praying that I wouldn't mingle in that stuff in this message into yesterday's, like, will this maggot take this worm? I was like, <laughs> no! I know. That's what I was thinking, like, Lord, protect me, because this could be really, really bad. And sometimes when you preach consecutively, you mix stuff together, you know, and and we got through it, though, right? I, I never called anyone a maggot. I never called anyone a worm. So uh, that's today. Oh, man, I, I was scared to death yesterday. I was. And uh, it's a short, concise, exceedingly cruel speech. I think he begins reasonably well. He presents some important doctrines that, you know, Job already understood. Um, it's like he's singing to the choir here. Uh, but then he ends with some devastating insults. He calls him a maggot and a worm. He really says that man is nothing more than a maggot and the son of man is nothing more than a worm, but we know what he's doing. He's calling Job those names. And if you think about what he's saying to Job here, wouldn't it have been particularly hurtful because what was Job covered in? Worms, right? Because he had all these open wounds all over him. He was kind of leprous and had these boils and um, he had worms on him and I think he probably fought them off but they just kept reappearing and so um, this would have been really, really mean toward this poor guy. Um, Job 7.5 talks about how he was clothed with worms and dirt. Uh, but I don't think that the name calling here was the most painful part of this final speech. I don't. I think calling Job a maggot and a worm, it stung, definitely, kind of like the uh, Modesto Yellow Jackets. How many of you have those around your house, especially during summertime? They're all over the place. And uh, I remember one time I was sitting in my living room, and I just felt this burning on my leg, and I looked down, and one was stinging me. It's like, what the heck's your problem, dude? I didn't even do anything to you. Those things are like little demons. <laughs> this thing had, this speech had a, the sting of a yellow jacket, um, no doubt, but that's not the most painful part with the insults. It's not. Uh, the most painful part is found not in the insults, but in what Bildad refused to say, what he withheld. You think about that, right? You have someone who's hurting that needs compassion and mercy, and all you do is come at them with hard truth and leave out the compassion and the mercy. That's what's happening here. So it's... Most painful part of this is not what Bildad said. It's what he didn't say. It's what he withheld from this guy who needed encouragement really, really bad. Please take your Bibles and turn over to uh, chapter 25. Look at verses 1 to 6. I'm going to point out a couple of things here this morning. I don't have any matching luggage or letters. Uh, Rachel's not here, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it always gets under... Always steams or clams, I guess, whatever that means. Let's just get more awkward here. 
Let me pray. Lord, uh, help me desperately. I am, don't even, can't even think straight. I didn't get much sleep, and you know this, and uh, I was praying all night, and that didn't do anything. Uh, but Lord, I just pray that uh, you give me, give me your grace in this time, and give, give our people grace in this time. Grace for me, the grace to listen and to learn. There's still truth here to be taught and to be learned. Doesn't matter what our condition is. In fact, I think the weaker we are, the, the better a message can be. Because we don't preach with human strength. We preach through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I pray that that would happen now. Um, build up your church here this morning. We pray for those who didn't make it in today and all of their sick. We lift them up to Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Three weeks ago is where we left off. Let's pick up our first point that I have. The first thing that Bill Dad talks about is the sovereignty of God. And that's really the whole book in a nutshell. It's what Job talks about. It's what Bill Dad and the other two friends talk about. But the sovereignty of God he opens up with here in this final speech. We see this in verses 1 to 3. It says, Then Bill Dad, the Shuhite, answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? Now, we have been carefully studying Job, and it just, I don't know, man. You get to these opening lines of this last speech, and you, you're trying to, if you're like me, you try to figure out how they fit into everything else that's been said. Bildad seems to have a mind of his own and just kind of does his own thing, and, and he just comes out with these statements that illustrate the sovereignty of God. There's four great truths here that illustrate the sovereignty of God. A, dominion and fear are with God. Verse 2a, God's dominion or sovereignty over heaven and earth should evoke fear or awe in the hearts of all people. The fact that dominion belongs exclusively to God means that He, <clears throat> that he reigns unrestricted in the heavens. It means that He governs over all, controlling all, and using everything for His glory. When this truth is understood this aspect of God's sovereignty, when we grasp this, awe should fill our hearts. And Bill Dad's point is that instead of complaining about your situation, you ought to be just awestruck, Job, is what he's essentially saying here. B, God makes peace in His high heaven. Verse 2b is the second statement he makes. Now, there may be confusion and disorder down here on earth. How many of us would agree to that? Things seem to run reasonably smoothly most times, but then we have these great seasons of confusion and disorder. I think we have that today in America. But in heaven, all is well because God has established perfect peace there in His abode, in His dwelling place. Now, that's an interesting statement that Bill Dad makes. He may have been pointing to the war that broke out in heaven. I don't know if you knew this or not, but there was actually a war that broke out in heaven early on. And it's where Lucifer, the chief of angels, Satan, the devil, and one-third of the angels actually rebelled against God. And uh, how many of you are familiar with that? That's pretty mysterious, right? It's like, what happened there? And when did that happen? I'm always trying to figure out when that happened. I feel like 
I feel like Lucifer was kicked out of heaven, then he went right into the garden and started messing with Adam and Eve. It seems like that would be the chronology. But in any case, there was some sort of conflict in heaven that took place. And I think Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, it, it seems to refer to this mysterious event. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. And that's referring to Lucifer. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So I think Isaiah is referencing this war that took place in heaven. And all of this talk here is about Lucifer trying to exalt himself above God, or at least at the same level of God, and then being cast out. So I'm pretty sure that's what what is being talked about here. And I think Bildad might be pointing to this. Uh, Christopher Ash wrote, God is so great that He has won the absolute victory over the highest powers in the heavens, thus making peace. So you get the idea that war broke out in heaven. God expelled those who disrupted heaven, those who tried to rebel against Him, those who tried to rise above Him, or at least to His level. He boots them all out and He reestablishes peace in the heavens. Now, the cool thing is, is that in the future, God will establish the same peace here on earth. I mean, is that something that we need? Right? Is that something that we long for? There's all this talk about racism and these things, and, and, and racism is a, is a scourge. I get that. And there's always this talk about peace and ending racism and all that. And boy, that'd be nice to see that in our lifetime, I think as well as every other disparaging thing. But ultimately, we're not going to see that level of peace on earth until Christ comes back. It's not going to happen until He returns. He will come back and He will break His adversaries with a rod of iron. He will judge the living and the dead. He will establish His throne. Psalm 2.9, 2 Timothy 4.1, Revelation 19.11, Matthew 25.31-33. So... There is peace in heaven, and I think that's comforting for me because that means that when we and our loved ones go there, it's peaceful, right? There's a, a place being prepared for us there in absolute, total, perfect peace. So unlike this world, although we long for that peace to come here, but it's got to come when Christ comes, not coming before that. C, God's heavenly armies are innumerable. Verse 3a, the third point that he makes here about the sovereignty of God. The fact of the matter is no one can number God's forces in heaven, in the heavens. Uh, no one, nobody can do that. Uh, there are just too many angels to be numbered. Um, these forces here are heavenly armies that, that Bildad's referring to. They are the angelic armies who are always at God's command, always ready at a moment's notice to do His will. Thus, the execution of His sovereign purposes cannot be resisted by Satan, demons, man, any creature, nature, or events. Uh, when that mob was about to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? How many of you remember that text? 
Matthew 26, verse 53. Jesus is approached by an arresting mob with Judas out in front, and he, he pauses to tell all these people here that if I wanted to, I could make one call, and 12 legions of angels would come down here and put an end to you in about a nanosecond. Literally, he says this. And I uh, did a little research on it. There's varying numbers on how many would be in a legion, but it looks like it's about 6,500 per legion in terms of the Roman legions because that's the reference that would have been used. These are Roman times. Jesus is essentially saying, if I wanted to get out of this, I could easily appeal to my Father in heaven, and he would quickly dispatch 78,000 angels to come to my aid. Angels are more powerful than human beings. Um, if you read the Old Testament, you see them annihilating entire people groups. Uh, in fact, uh, one angel, the angel of the Lord, which may be the pre-incarnate Christ, that's the kind of common belief, this one angel, which may have been Jesus before his incarnation, killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. One night. Just went right through the camp and wasted them. What kind of carnage could 78,000 angels create? If Jesus had summoned the Father and he'd sent 78,000. Surely the 200 Roman soldiers and temple guards who came for Jesus in the garden that night would be no match for even one of God's angels, let alone 12 legions. Bildad's point is that they're innumerable. There's so many you can't count them. Far more, I think there's far more angels than actual people. There could very well be. So many that you can't number them, maybe like the sand on the seashore. D, God's light arises and shines on all. Verse 3b, uh, what Bildad is doing is he's using light as a metaphor to describe God's all-seeing eyes and omniscience or all knowledge. Uh, the fact of the matter is no one escapes the penetrating gaze of God. In Proverbs 15.3 we read, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Now, technically, God does not have eyes, right? He's a spirit being. But this kind of language is used so we can understand that He's everywhere and sees all things, even though He doesn't have a set of eyes like we do. In Hebrews 4.13, it says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. That's in your bulletin. That's a really terrifying verse if you just stop and ponder that. Think about that. Nothing in creation is hidden from this sovereign, all-seeing, all-knowing God. And in fact, He's the one in whom we have to give an account. Uh, thanks be to Jesus Christ that Jesus did that for us. Because I'll tell you what, it won't be good for us if we're outside of Christ. Uh, another verse here concerning the understanding and knowledge of God, Psalm 147, verse 5. And of course, Romans 11.31, they say, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. That's incredible, just beyond anything that can be measured. And then, of course, the Romans text, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. I mean, His wisdom and knowledge is unsearchable. It's beyond anything that we could fathom. We're talking about an infinite mind and knowledge here where we have finite stuff going on here. 
1 Samuel 2.3 and 1 John 3.20. There's truths here that basically affirm Bildad's truth in the simplest, most clear way. Um, 1 Samuel 2.3 simply says, The Lord is a God of knowledge. And I would say that He is the God of knowledge. He knows all things. Then, of course, 1 John 3.20, God knows all things. Just real plain, real simple. Affirmation of what Bildad is teaching us here. So it's important that we understand that everything Bildad has said thus far is absolutely true. Job would not have disagreed with him at one point here. He wouldn't have. He couldn't have. In fact, Job was a better theologian than his friends. So there's no way he would have disagreed. Job was um, what we probably call a brain. Pretty smart guy. But uh, I think more spirit-led than anything else. He was brilliant. And uh, he, he wouldn't have disagreed with anything that was said here at all, probably with the worm and maggot part. I'm sure he disagreed with, but he wouldn't have disagreed with what Bildad is saying here. A cursory reading of his responses in this book reveal his superior astuteness. He just had a better grasp of the truth than his friends, that's for sure. In fact, he's affirmed in the latter part, I think in chapter 41, He's affirmed by God, you have spoken rightly about me, you friends have not. So that illustrates Job's superior astuteness. He was a, a theologian, a real one back in his day, but he was unlike the ivory tower theologians. Job actually lived out his doctrines. He had orthodoxy, that would be set beliefs, and he had orthopraxy, that would be right action, the right application of those beliefs, living those beliefs out. That's what we're called to have, by the way. Not just a set of beliefs, but action, putting those beliefs to work. And Job had all of that and a bag of chips. He was not a mere hearer of the word and therefore self-deceived. He was a doer of the word, James 1.22. Let's move to our second point. The first one is the sovereignty of God. The second one is the total depravity of man. We see this in verses 4 to 6. I feel like we're going back through the Calvinism thing. He says, how then can man be right? He's said all these wonderful things about God's sovereignty. And he says this, how then can man be right before God? Like, you know, he has these armies and he's all of this. I mean, how, how, what, are we, what are we talking about here? How could he even be right before this God that I'm describing? He says, how can he who is born of a woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot <laughs> and the son of man who is a worm? Job has declared in previous sections, he's declared his righteousness in Job 17.9. He's declared his purity, Job 11.4. He's declared his justness, Job 12.4. His blamelessness, Job chapter 9, verse 20, 21 through 22, and chapter 12, verse 4. He has declared his innocence, Job chapter 9, verse 23, and chapter 17, verse 8. So he's declared all these things about himself. And then back in verses, or actually chapter 23, verses 3 and 4, he expressed a desire to lay his case and fill his mouth with arguments before the seat of God. You probably remember that. What's happening here in verse 4 is that Bildad is seeking to totally obliterate any confidence that Job has in his own righteousness, in his justness, or any of the things I just listed. He's seeking to obliterate his confidence and all hope of being acquitted by God. 
You've said all these wonderful things about yourself, and I'm telling you these wonderful things about God, and I'm now saying that how could you possibly be pure before God? You're, you're nothing more than a worm. You're a, a, a maggot. You say you're innocent? How could any sinner be innocent before God? You say, you say you're just, you act and live justly? How could anyone how could your justness stack up to that of the sovereign God? This is what Bildad is saying here. He asks a rhetorical question that Job and Eliphaz had already asked in chapter 9, verse 2, and chapter 4, verse 17. How can man be in the right before God? This is probably like the third or fourth time this question has been asked in this book. And Bildad believes that man has zero ability to make himself right before a holy God. He was a one-point Calvinist, a defender of the T, the T in our tulip, right, total depravity. He supported that one letter and that one doctrine, and he was correct. The Bible clearly teaches that it is beyond our ability to clean ourselves up and make ourselves righteous before God. That's not even a possibility for us sinners. Isaiah 64, 6 declares that the righteous deeds of men merit nothing, for they are like a polluted garment. The Apostle Paul taught that any attempt to merit righteousness is anathema or cursed, Galatians 1, 9. He also said that no one will be justified through works of the law, Galatians 2, 16, verse A. Now, what we do matters, but what we do will never merit righteousness before God. Never. Never in a million years. Now, in the second half of verse 4, Bildad doubles down with another probing rhetorical question. How can he who is born of a woman be pure? How does that happen? And this one carries the idea of purifying yourself, self-purification. You must understand that we were conceived in iniquity, Psalm 51, 5. That means when your mother and father came together and did what parents and adults do and you were conceived, you were conceived in sin. Why? Because your parents are sinners. Every person is a sinner by default because our parents are all sinners. What's this guy doing? Huh? He's trying to come in. <laughs> I'll take a Big Mac. A, uh, remember how they'd skate around at the place? Yeah. All right. Maybe he'll. Uh, maybe he'll give up. Uh, sorry about the distraction. I just realized there's a guy out there like trying to get my attention, and I barely have any attention right now. So again, the Bible clearly teaches that it is beyond our ability to clean ourselves up. We cannot make ourselves righteous. Paul taught this. The whole Bible teaches this, and. And Bildad doubles down and starts talking about self-purification. He says, how can he who is born of a woman be pure? We were conceived in iniquity, therefore all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah 53.6. There is no one righteous, not even one, Romans 3.10. We need to understand, and really what Bildad's getting at here is totally true too. Nobody can self-purify. But I think that people today have a corrupted view of what sin is. They 
see it as a mere disease that can be treated and maybe even cured. Well, they're wrong. It's not like cancer or COVID. It's why cancer and COVID are in our world, along with every other malady. Sin is a congenital malformation. It's a birth defect, literally. Some of you know what that means because you work with babies, your nurses. It is a birth defect. It's part of our DNA. And it has rendered us spiritually dead and will one day render us physically dead, right? The wages of sin is death, Romans 3.23. No person can self-purify because no person can cure their own systemic sin problem. No person can reverse their own total depravity. So Bildad was also correct about self-purification here. It's not even possible. You can't make yourself right before God. You can't purify yourself by going through religious motions, whatever it is. It's not a reality. It's not a possibility. In verse 5, Bildad begins to drive home his point with an illustration. The moon and stars shine in the night sky. We've all enjoyed that. It's kind of harder to see them when you live in town. Uh, but they never, no matter what, shine as brightly as the sun. Amen? Right? You look into the sun, you jack your eyes up. In fact, the moon doesn't even have light of its own. It doesn't produce light. It just reflects it. It merely reflects the sun's light rays. The sun illuminates everything in our galaxy because it is the closest star. In fact, it takes 8.3 minutes for its light rays to reach Earth and about five and a half hours to reach Pluto. I don't know if you knew that or not. Bildad's point was that the moon and stars shine in the heavens above, but compared to the brightness of the sun, they are nothing. In the same way, neither is man pure when compared to God. God is like the sun. His purity is bright and even blinding. Man is like the moon. He has no purity of his own, just as the moon has no light of its own. This is Bildad's illustration, and he's thoroughly right. In verse 6, Bildad chooses the most putrid creature he can think of to illustrate what he thinks man is. Okay? This is his anthropology, his view of what man is. It's also his view of what Job is. But he comes up with the nastiest bug, I think, on earth, right? Is it the cockroach? No, it's the maggot. It's the maggot. It's the nastiest bug of all, in my opinion. He even calls the son of man, which refers to every person born of man, like every literal person, a worm. I think we would all agree that worms are dirty and kind of gross, amen, just like maggots. But that's not the idea that Bildad has here. He was thinking of weakness when he talked about a worm. When I was in grade school, the bigger, stronger kids would sometimes call the skinnier, weaker kids scrawny little worms. Remember that? Did you call somebody that? Steve, you need to repent. All right. All right. You scrawny little worm. Right. I looked like Daniel's son from the Karate Kid. I weighed like 110 pounds wet, and you know the big hulky jocks would come by and go, "Hey, is that uh, is that a thread hanging right there? Oh no, that's your arm." I was like, "I eat a lot, uh, but you know, you scrawny little worm." That's essentially what Bildad is saying here. 
The Son of Man, everyone born of a woman, born of a man, is essentially a scrawny, little, weak worm. You have no purity of your own. You have no strength of your own is what he's saying. And he is, in a sense, right here. He is. All people are impure and weak because of sin. But they are not maggots and they are not worms. Okay? Uh, unfortunately, Bildad has a very low anthropology. He doesn't think very highly of man at all, and I don't think we should think really highly of man, but man is not a maggot or a worm. What is man? He's an image bearer. He has intrinsic worth and value and dignity. This is huge. If we see other people as nothing more than maggots and worms, then we're not going to treat them very well, are we? Right? People are image bearers. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and for some mysterious sovereign reason, God has chosen to make people the objects of His mercy, compassion, and saving grace. Okay? Bildad is essentially telling Job, you have said that you are pure and that you would like to stand before the sovereign, infinitely pure God to plead your case and that He would not only pay attention to you but acquit you of any sinful wrongdoing. Have you forgotten that you are nothing more than a maggot and a worm? This is what he's saying to his friend that's hurting. The question is, was he right about Job? No, not even close. Job was no maggot or worm. No person is a maggot or worm, although I would say that sometimes people act like that. They act like animals. Uh, if you don't believe me, just go into a park restroom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one time I had to go in one of those, and I was like, I got to go real bad. Rachel's like, come on, we're walking. And I went in there, and it was like, I don't even want to tell you what it was like. I was like, hey, look, let's splash poo everywhere. People, I don't know what it is about people, but they get crazy when they get into an environment like that. They act like animals in there. So, of course, I didn't go to the bathroom there. I had to hold it till I got home. And I was walking really fast. No, people act like animals. I mean, have they not been taught that they evolved from animals? You, you've, we've kind of come to expect that they would act a bit like animals since they were, they've been taught since grade school, since probably early elementary, that they evolved from animals. So it's no mystery as to why they act like animals. But they're not animals. They're not worms. They're not maggots or anything like that. They are image bearers. Job was no worm or maggot. He was actually blameless and upright. He was a man who feared God and turned away from evil, Job 1.1. He was chosen by God to suffer and prove to the devil and to all creation that God's people worship Him, not merely for what He gives, but because of who God is. <clears throat> Job chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 3. Now, Bildad was wrong about Job but totally right about God's sovereignty, totally right about man's depravity, 100%. This passage can and should be used as a proof text to defend those essential doctrines. If you want to defend the sovereignty of God and salvation, go to this text. If you want to defend the total depravity of man, go to this text. It's a wonderful text for these things. Bildad has done us a great service here, in a sense. As I said earlier, the trouble is not with what he said, it's with what he did not say. Right? He included zero encouragement in his final speech. There is no 
good news here, is there? He ends on a sour note of you are a maggot and a worm. Terrible. And, and I would just simply say that God is sovereign. Man is totally depraved. We have no purity of our own. Uh, our sin is like filthy maggots, and our strength is that of a worm. Hallelujah. Amen. I think we would all agree. But where is the good news? Where is the gospel? You see, you cannot preach these hard doctrines and leave out the doctrine of salvation, right? This is your last shot at reaching your friend, and you leave the gospel, at least your version of it in your time and space, your dispensation, you leave it out of your message. How do you do this? That's insane. We've come to encourage you, Job, you maggot, you worm. How is that an encouragement? I'd be like, okay, slime ball. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but not in this case. Where's the good news? Now, although the Old Testament had yet to be written, Job and his friends did practice the very first version of the sacrificial system. They made burnt offerings to temporarily atone for their sins like Adam and Eve had done in the past, long before these guys lived. Job chapter 1, verse 5, and then you see Adam and Eve having that done for them in chapter 3, verse 25 of Genesis. Their use, Job and his friends' use of this first sacrificial system reveals that they had some knowledge of other important doctrines and maybe some divine attributes. It shows that they knew about God's mercy, about God's love, about God's forgiveness, about God's cleansing power, about salvation. They knew something about these things because they were making offerings that were an expression of God's love and mercy toward them and giving them forgiveness. These animals were sacrificed. Their blood was shed for the remission of their sins. They had some knowledge of some kind of proto-gospel. And yet, there's nothing here. Bildad's involvement with the first sacrificial system leaves him without excuse. Believing that Job is a terrible sinner, right? Because that's what he's been saying over and over with the other friends. He could have easily pointed Job to the mercy of God, to the love of God, to the forgiveness of God, to the cleansing power of God, to the salvation of God. He could have even made burnt offerings on behalf of Job, just as Job had done for his own children when he thought they were sinning behind his back. Job 1.5. Bildad could have said a lot and could have done a lot here. And yet he refused to point Job to these other truths because he was self-righteous and judgmental. Instead of sharing the truth and love with Job, he weaponized it and beat Job over the head with it. He even called him names, maggot, Worm. I'll tell you what, Bildad was one heck of an evangelist. Listen up, you maggots and you worms. You need the gospel. I mean, can you imagine walking by his street corner? It's more like Bildad the bomber. Although most of what Bildad said is true, God is sovereign, mankind is totally depraved, sinful through and through, spiritually dead, 
A man has no purity or strength of his own. What he refused to say is equally true. God is also merciful. God is also loving. God is also forgiving. God is also cleansing. God is Savior. Now, God does not save sinners through the sacrificial system of Job's day or of Moses' day or of any other dispensation of time, but through the one whom he sent to be the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Christ Jesus. God expressed his mercy through the condescension and sending of Christ. God expressed his love through the crucifixion of Christ. God has expressed his forgiveness and cleansing power through the shed blood of Christ. And God is expressing for all eternity his salvation to all who repent and trust in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. If you have repented of your unbelief and put your trust in Christ alone for your salvation, God has been merciful and loving to you. He has forgiven your sins. He has cleansed you of your iniquities. He has made you pure. He has saved you. Act accordingly. If you have not repented and trusted in Christ, you know what you need to do. You cannot make yourself or merit righteousness. You need the righteousness of Christ. You cannot override your total depravity. You need the Holy Spirit to give you a new birth and new nature. You cannot atone for your own sins. You need the atonement of Christ. You cannot cleanse and purify yourself. You need the blood of Christ. You cannot save yourself. You need God to save you. He's the only Savior. Isaiah 43, verse 11, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And he saves. He saves sinners like you and me. He saves sinners through Christ alone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which men uh, must be saved. Acts 4, 12. And I would just encourage you, implore you, don't wait any longer. You think that God's going to give you extended days? You have no idea. Today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6.2. Repent and trust in Christ right now. Do not tarry. Do not let another moment go by. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and it's wonderful, and for this short speech with the exception of the nasty stuff on the end, uh, but there's still some really good truth here. And uh, I pray that, Lord, we would become the kind of people that are totally willing to share the bad news and then back it up with the good news. We don't want to be like Bildad, who just shared the bad news, <clears throat> talking about God's sovereignty, wonderful truth, talking about human depravity, wonderful truth, but almost nonsensical or meaningless without good news. You sent your son to come and bear our sin on the cross. That you send your Holy Spirit to make us new, to rebirth us, to make us born again. Born from above. You make us new creations. You give us the purity of Christ, the righteousness of Christ. Thank you, Father, for your work. I pray that every soul in this room would repent and trust in Christ right now. We thank you for this time we've had together and thank you for getting me through the text. We pray in Jesus' matchless name.